Hi there, this is Carrie Gann, and you're listening to Health Discovered, the show dedicated to taking on important topics and discussing what they mean for your health. Before we begin this episode, some news. This will be my last week hosting Health Discovered. It's been a true honor to bring you such fascinating and important stories over the last few years, during the pandemic and even before, when most of us didn't know what a coronavirus was. But this show will continue to help you understand the things that affect your health while looking for unexpected discoveries along the way. It will also explore thought-provoking ideas and questions, like this one. Could all of us benefit from psychotherapy, even if we don't think we need it? Here to help us answer that question is Kelly Kitley, a licensed clinical social worker specializing in cognitive behavioral therapy and author of Myself, an Autobiography of Survival. I read a line in your book that you wish everyone could participate in a year of psychotherapy. Why is that? Oh, I love that quote because <laughs> I, I, I wholeheartedly believe it. I think we would be more self-aware and more empathic with one another. And it would just, it, I think we'd relate better as well. I think the therapeutic process is a journey that helps us get in touch with feelings and relatability to other human beings as well. Are there specific skills, I suppose, that you think everyone could learn from psychotherapy that would give them those those qualities that you talked about, more empathy and, and just better communication? I think that the skills that people can learn from being in psychotherapy is a very clear process-oriented approach in terms of thinking things through, um, especially with clients that I work with. I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist, so a lot of it is about pausing and and um, looking at thoughts you might be having that then relate to certain feelings and how others can trigger us. And maybe it's based on situations that we've had personally, as opposed to somebody else's experience. And so I think we might not take things as personally either, if we could understand um, our own process of relating with others. I'm glad you mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy. I definitely want to get back to the different types of therapy in a little bit. But first of all, you know, obviously therapy is an important part of care for mental health conditions, you know, depression, anxiety, PTSD, those types of things. And others find it helpful for working through a specific problem or getting through maybe a tough period in their life. But I think a lot of people might say, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not quote unquote crazy. I'm not mentally ill. Why do I need therapy? Do you have a, an answer for that? How would you respond to somebody? I do because I see people along the spectrum and I know that there are a lot of therapists and some therapists who have turned kind of life coach um, in terms of working with people who just want self-improvement or want to be the best version of themselves. And so there might not be anything chronic or diagnosable, but it is an opportunity for personal and self-growth. And how so? Being able to be accountable to somebody and to have regular check-ins and potentially homework assignments. And really, I look at that personal development with a therapist to be something like seeing a personal trainer that we can work out on our own and, and maybe have fine results. But if we have somebody who's pushing us outside of our comfort zone, such as a therapist or a personal trainer, we might achieve different results and be more motivated as well. That's interesting that you say that because, you know, a lot of people see the value in getting like a physical checkup 
each year, or they, you know, if there's something they feel kind of off physically, they will go have no problem seeing a doctor. But I don't necessarily think people think of their mental health that way. Do you think there's value in people seeing therapy as sort of like a mental health checkup? Absolutely. And that is my goal is to really destigmatize mental health treatment and looking at it from a whole health perspective. And so much of our physical health and our mental health can be intertwined. And so similarly, as you would go see a doctor once a year for a checkup, it, I think it would be great if people had diag diagnostic assessments or checkups or tune-ups, as I like to call them, um, to check in with their mental health as well. Do you think there's still a stigma around therapy for many people? You know, I think lots of people think of therapy, you know, like there's you have you have some issues, you have some problems, not necessarily viewing therapy as a, you know, a healthy thing, a positive thing that people do. Do you find that there's still a lot of stigma that you encounter about going to therapy? There is a lot of stigma. And I think the more we can desensitize the the experience is something positive in a way of people talking about it. I think especially people who have large platforms um, such as, you know, there are a lot of celebrities that are coming out and talking about their own journey with mental health. And so it, it normalizes it a little more. Um, if we see people who look like us or talk to people um, in our day-to-day -day life who can say, oh, I've gone to therapy and this is how it has helped me. So I think it's a ambiguous component that people um, are sometimes unsure of what therapy is about or they're fearful. But if somebody can kind of break it down for them and, and share their experience, then people are more likely to try it out. Where do you think that stigma comes from? I think possibly generationally that, that, you know, we have evolved so much, um, in terms of the mental health field. Um, but it used to be, you know, quote unquote, only crazy people did see therapists, you know, that there was something wrong with you that, you know, more Freudian type um, therapy where you lay on the couch and, and just um, talk without looking at the therapist. And it was just um, something that wasn't very connected in terms of a personal relationship, um, where I think there, there are so many different types of therapies now. And people didn't talk as openly about things either you know, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, even 20 years ago. Um, so it was so secretive. Um, and it, there was a lot of shame around going to see a therapist because there was, you know, this idea that something was wrong with you as opposed to, I'm just <laughs> making sure that I'm clear headed and I'm processing things because our brains are complicated. And it, it's so important to be able to have clarity, especially in the world that we're living in today. Yeah, that's true. And not everyone has that that great friend or that great mentor or some supportive person who's just going to kind of listen to you and help you work through some stuff. Definitely. There are obviously many different types of therapy Go ahead and describe the main ones for us. You mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy. That's a common one. Yes, that's a common one. Um, psychodynamic therapy is very popular in terms of ways that we interact with other people and dynamics in our family and looking at more of a historical viewpoint of kind of why we are the way that we are and, and our behaviors and the family dynamics we grew up in and how those kind of carry 
with us even into other relationships as we become adult. And there's also um, narrative-based therapy where people really learn to tell their stories and understand where they come from. There's psychodrama therapy where people um, might act out different family scenario situations um, with the therapist or group therapy um, has become really popular now too because there has been such a limit in availability for individual therapy with the pandemic and just the increase of mental health. So, you know, instead of uh, one therapist meeting with somebody individually for an hour, they have the opportunity to see 12 people, you know, in a 90 minute session and each person, um, it has different benefits of being in group therapy and relating with other people as well. Okay. If you don't mind, describe the or I guess just a good description of cognitive behavioral therapy for us would be helpful. Sure. So cognitive behavioral therapy was developed by a man named Aaron Beck, Dr. Aaron Beck. And the idea behind it is that our thoughts create uh, emotions or ignite different kinds of emotions. So if I have a, a negative mental filter and maybe my internal dialogue is um, I don't like myself or I'm not good at anything, then most likely I'm not going to feel very good. I might have low self-esteem, low confidence, possibly feel depressed. And the idea behind cognitive behavioral therapy is to be able to shift or cognitive therapy to shift our thinking in and not in a Pollyanna way, but a more realistic approach. So saying something like, you know, I, I'm really struggling today, but I'm working on this to get to a better place. That feels so much more gentle. <laughs> it does. It really does. <laughs> um, and, and in behaviors too, I think a lot of times human beings have maladaptive coping mechanisms to self-soothe. And some of those are really d dangerous, whether it's substance abuse or self-harm. And so being able to find positive coping mechanisms through behaviors, you know, such as nutrition or moving our body or connecting with other people. So I like to call it a combination of sorts um, with cognitive behavioral therapy. And the reason I love it so much is because oftentimes people will feel better in a shorter amount of time because they're having tangible tools that they can put into practice and, and then implement those in their day-to-day -day life. Right. So that's a lot of different types of therapy. <laughs> I have to say, like, it really does seem like there's such a why it's, it's definitely moves beyond the typical, you know, laying on a couch and, you know, talking to your therapist type of image that everyone has. How might someone know the type of therapy that's right for them if they're simply not aware, or they're just not experienced with these different types? Well, often I think people feel so overwhelmed with not even knowing where to start, especially if they have had no prior experience with therapy. And so I typically suggest when somebody says, you know, how can I find a therapist? I think when people go to their doctor, if they do have an internist or general practitioner, certainly for a lot of women um, going to their gynecologist or OBGYN, they usually have good relationships with therapists that they can make recommendations for. And also, I think sometimes traditional talk therapy is a good place for people to start. Um, um, just in terms of kind of identifying maybe some areas that 
that you might be struggling with in your daily life. And then the more experienced you get being able to explore other avenues of therapy, um, maybe marital therapy or family therapy or group therapy. Is there ever like I'm thinking of uh, like drama therapy that you were talking about, you know, acting out, you know, different situations in your past life. Would a therapist like maybe just kind of get to know you and think maybe you might, would you like to try this type of therapy? Like, I'm just curious how you arrive at something like that. That's not as traditional of a type therapy. And I certainly, as a cognitive behavioral therapist and social worker, wouldn't that would go outside my scope. I wouldn't feel as comfortable facilitating that type of therapy. But I certainly have colleagues who do practice that um, and are experts in that that field of psychodrama. And it's usually listed on their website, what they specialize in. Or, you know, for me, for example, it, it my areas of expertise are anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction. And so those are on my website. And, and we have some evidence-based therapies that work well for, for treatment for certain diagnoses. I see. Okay. A lot of information. It is. <laughs> well, and that's a lot for someone to, you know, who's relatively new to wanting to try therapy, perhaps to see if it would help them. That's a lot of information for them to process. Even when doctors will give referrals, they may hand the patient a sheet of paper that says, here's a list of providers um, for therapy. And even that task can feel overwhelming. So I always suggest to people, you know, start with three, check out their website, you know, um, give them a call. And also there are, are a lot of people are reporting back to me that a lot of therapists are full right now and not taking on new clients. And so sometimes it's a matter of finding a good fit first and foremost, but also if it's scheduling or availability, you know, that might be a second criteria that someone's really looking at. I know you you mentioned a minute ago that you get this question a lot, finding the right therapist for you. Do you have any tips on you know, good points to cover with a therapist to see if they'd be the, a good fit or, you know, for a lack of a better word, like interviewing the therapist mm -hmm. to see if you'd work well with them. What are some of the things that somebody could think about in terms of selecting a therapist to work with? Sure. It is. It, you've got to shop around, you know, um, just like any field. Um, there are good mechanics and not so great mechanics and there are good therapists and not so great therapists. And so a lot of the time I do believe that the relationship is a connection that somebody feels. And we typically know within the first five minutes of meeting somebody, you know, what that connection feels like, because we have intuition, we have energy. And so I think it's important, two things, one, that you don't feel judged, and that you feel like you can be open and honest. And two, to be able to kind of identify if you feel like that, that therapist can help you. So talking about access to therapy, you know, being able to schedule an appointment, telehealth, it seems has really changed therapy in a, in a big way. It seems like, you know, there's so many apps and online services that, that are available that are out there. Have you noticed how that has affected your practice specifically? Has it affected the type of people who are coming to you for therapy? 
I think it makes it more accessible for people. And, you know, personally, I did see all of my clients in an office in downtown Chicago. And when the pandemic hit, we all kind of scrambled to figure out ways of, of still providing therapy in, in every field, how to, how to work remotely. And now I'm just really reassessing if I'll go back into an office because so many of my clients find it that much easier to be able to log in from home or to be able to have access for their schedule. Um, and I, I think there are a lot of really good ways to find treatment virtually as well. But I, I also believe that there's nothing better than being able to sit in person with somebody face to face without that barrier of a screen. Are there any people that you think the virtual interaction might be a little easier? I'm, I'm just curious. I feel like some people are really hesitant to go back to those in-person interactions. I wonder if that's the case with therapy too. I mean, anybody who might have social anxiety um, and have fears of uh, leaving their house if they have agoraphobia um, or have um, anxieties around taking public transportation or driving. Um, I also notice a lot of, I work with a lot of women and, and moms and they've found it so much easier to be able to, you know, drop their kids off at school and do therapy from their car <laughs> over Zoom, <laughs> you know, um, that, that, you know, I don't want to create a problem either because I think it needs to be carved out time where you're very mindful and having therapy. And I don't want people taking it less serious, you know, by driving or <laughs> working it in on their way to, yeah, the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> correct. Correct. But it, it definitely has made it more accessible for people and people being able to find the time to do it too. Right. Zoom from your car. That's the very definition of accessibility, I would say. <laughs> parked. Parked, though. <laughs> That's great. Yes. <laughs> no moving traffic in your therapy session. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> On any Zoom call, we should say. <laughs> Well, and the other thing that that I've adapted to is I, because there were some people who were craving that personal interaction um, in person. As I started doing walk and talk therapy, so I would meet somebody in their neighborhood, um, and we would walk and talk. It's not as um, private, obviously, but um, I found for a lot of my teens too not having to make face-to-face -face contact. It's kind of like driving in the car with a teen where you kind of sometimes have some really deep conversations. It was the same with walking, you know, and it was also affecting mind and body and, and movement and things like that. So, you know, I, there's a type of therapy for everybody out there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What are some of the biggest barriers you think people face in accessing any mental health services, particularly something like therapy? Finances, for sure. You know, and even if it, I, I don't take insurance. Um, I'm a private pay practitioner, but I did take insurance for a long time. And people found that they had limited amount of sessions that they were allowed to engage in dictated by the insurance provider. Or you do have to have a diagnosis for the insurance to cover it. And then there's another hurdle going through finding 
the therapist that takes your insurance. So I think that can really frustrate people. And um, even accessibility in terms of community mental health, where I worked for a long time earlier in my career, there's really long waiting lists. So if you're able to get really reduced cost therapy or even free therapy, you might be waiting six months to a year to get in to see somebody. Those can be significant barriers for people. Is there, especially with something like cost or insurance, are there, I don't know if you have any like tips that you usually offer people who are struggling with those kinds of things, or is it just sort of making sure you have, you know, whatever matches your insurance is the way you go? You know, I I think that's been another really great thing about virtual access um, during the pandemic is a lot of 12-step meetings. So whether it's Overeaters Anonymous or um, Alcoholics Anonymous or Al-Anon. These are 12-step programs that are free. And so um, there are, you can log in from anywhere in the, in the country or the world, and there's a meeting every hour. You know, you can find one and several per hour. And so sometimes if somebody really has no resources, that can be an amazing adjunct to somebody's therapy, um, but it can also be a first Thing to start. Um, and, and certainly there are hotlines to call if somebody is feeling um, like suicidal or needing some immediate help. Um, there are suicide hotlines and there are mental health hotlines, um, but that tend to be something um, people can access in the moment rather than an ongoing resource. Yeah, that's very important to mention someone who's feeling like they are a danger to themselves or they fear that someone is else is a danger to themselves to definitely reach out for emergency help or talk to a call a suicide prevention hotline. Or just show up at the emergency room because it's a safe place. Right. Absolutely. Okay. That's a good thing to note for people to note. I want to shift. It's not therapy, but... There are practices uh, that have become a lot more commonplace, I think, like meditation and mindfulness. They're obviously not a replacement for therapy if, you, if that's what you really need. But do you see any kind of role for those types of practices in just kind of staying mentally healthy? I think it's a prerequisite <laughs> for, I do, I think, you know, and, and another form of therapy is dialectical behavioral therapy. And that is a mindfulness-based harm reduction type of therapy that is skill building and tool focused. Um, and so a lot of times, especially in treating anxiety and depression, there is a component of either not being in touch with your body or being too attached and, and overly stimulated to your body. So I think the mindfulness and the meditation can really help ground people. Now, anytime I bring up meditation to, to clients who've never tried it, they say, oh, I could never meditate. I can't sit still. Or, um, you know, I, I, my mind is always racing. I, I would never be able to clear my head. And I think there's some psychoeducation that needs to happen around that. I'll say, could you listen to a five-minute walking meditation or a guided meditation where, you know, I think the idea is you just sit there in silence, but there are, that is actually, you know, very difficult for most people to do. So the idea um, that I like to, to teach people first is mindfulness. Can you smell your coffee? Can you listen to it drip? You know, awakening the senses and just being present with what's right in front of you. 
as opposed to sometimes what we do is get our phone out in the morning and make our coffee and pack our lunch, (laughs) multitasking. And then that just creates this hypersensitivity and over adrenaline rush of, of anxiety too. Um, so if we can kind of slow down and pause and especially start or finish our day, um, in that space, it, it really helps. You have a very interesting personal story. I would love to hear a little bit about how you got into this, this field. Sure. I tell people um, I grew up in, above my parents' bar, so that was probably my first um, exposure to uh, many different personalities and um, just being very aware at a young age um, as as the oldest of five and also being around that environment um, with my parents in the restaurant and bar business. Um looking at drinking as a very normalized social behavior. Um, and people, we had regulars at the bar who would stay there all day. So I just thought that was what most people did. And, um, you know, found myself having my first drink at the age of 12, that was a binge and resulted in a blackout and, you know, have, have a history of some trauma in my life as well. And, used alcohol to cope um, with some of the symptoms and the flashbacks and the anxiety that I was feeling. And so having my own experience of being in therapy as a teenager and how powerful and corrective that experience was for me in overcoming an eating disorder. I, I specifically remember at age 16 sitting in the ther- across from the therapist and thinking, this is exactly what I want to do when I grow up. Because this is the most, for me at that time, and I still feel this today, is such impactful work. And, you know, one of my pet peeves is when people say, oh, they've been doing that for years. They couldn't change. They're not going to change. I'm like, I'm in the business of change. (laughs) So there are a lot of changes people can make to better their life. And so I, I, I am a trained therapist, but I also have a lot of my own experience that brought me into this field. Surely that's got to be pretty useful for you when it comes to working with clients. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been in the trenches, you know, and, and I wrote a book and, and, and it's an autobiography, you know, as you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation. And a lot of my colleagues really didn't think it was a good idea when I started writing it about 10 years ago. They f- said it would ruin my career, that the therapist is supposed to be the professional and, you know, that it would really maybe devalue some of my clients' experiences, um, knowing some of my personal history. But I knew I had this burning desire to do it and hearing other people's stories is what really helped and inspired me. Um, And it actually did the exact opposite. So most of my clients who have read my book will say, gosh, I feel like you really understand what I'm going through. Um, Or it's, your your life seems more relatable than this expert in the chair, you know, um, making suggestions based off articles or books that I read. Right. That makes sense. My final question for you, for someone who is wondering to themselves, you know, maybe I should try, maybe, do I need therapy? Do I need to go to a therapist? How would you approach helping them answer that question? What should be the next step? I think oftentimes people are afraid to start therapies because they're afraid that they're signing up for something that they're not going to be able to get out of, or they have no idea what to expect. And so I suggest 
reach out to somebody, get a referral from from a friend or family member or doctor and try it. Have one session. I mean, there are, I, I call it like de-virginizing yourself to therapy. Um, do it once. See what it feels like. You may feel, I, I mean, I started therapy at a young age, so I don't even remember what that that initial feeling is, but something I took with me was like, I felt heard and understood and validated. Um, cause I wasn't feeling that anywhere else or getting that. And so, um, that can be really transformative. So dip your toe in, you could have a really good experience and be really glad that you did it, or you could not have a great experience and don't write off therapy forever. Say maybe that person just wasn't a good fit and keep looking. Just, yeah, give it a try. See if it helps you see what it can do for you. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you think we ought to mention? I think in the season that we're in now, um, for anybody who's listening, uh, I know this is my busiest time of year is around the holidays as people are around more family and friends, especially for the first time, you know, in a long time because of the pandemic. And I think oftentimes when people feel like they've resolved some old wounds or issues, they get brought to the forefront during this time of year. And so I always suggest that people just be really gentle with themselves and really amp up their self-care. You know, if you're going to visit family for a week, you don't have to be with them for 12 hours a day, you know, take breaks, go for walks, you know, go sit at the coffee shop by yourself, take a nap. It's really important to, to, Make sure that you're checking in with yourself rather than all of the the external components around us in this busy season. That's a really good point, especially like you mentioned, after being probably away from family, likely for, for such a long time. Do you think, or I wonder if there's going to be a lot of people who find that there are issues that arise, you know, just because of that long absence because of the pandemic, issues that come up for them that they just haven't been prepared for? Sure. Or, you know, especially differing opinions about vaccinations or, you know, I mean, that just is a striking thing that a lot of my clients have brought up that, you know, we have a tendency to surround ourselves with like-minded people. And when we go to family events, we might not be um, sharing some of those same beliefs. So, you know, I, I suggest to people to kind of keep it light. Don't find, don't, don't provoke. And certainly, um, you know, I, I don't encourage not being your authentic self, but those aren't times to have those kinds of conversations because it will probably be more damaging than helpful. Um, so keep it light. <laughs> it's, it's a re-entry. From a re-entry to an exit, it's my final chance to thank you for listening to Health Discovered. And thanks to everyone who's made this show possible, including our editors and our producers, Kat Carney, Shannon Wilder, and Miranda Hitty. Take care, everyone.